Uh, my name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Uh, today marks the fourth Sunday in Advent, um, Advent a season uh, in the Christian calendar, which teaches us uh, to long for Christmas and to uh, celebrate the arrival of our Savior, King Jesus. And we spent the last few weeks in the opening uh, chapters of Matthew. Uh, Matthew, who was one of 12 disciples of Jesus, an eyewitness of Jesus' life, uh, and since he was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, he has tailored his book, his story, um, so, that, so that they could understand it and they could hear it. So we're continuing in Matthew 2 this morning. Um, yeah. So I, I grew up in Houston. Um, I was uh, minimally exposed to the church and to the story of Jesus, minimally, minimally exposed to the story of Jesus and the church, but I was always enchanted by Christmas, and one of my more vivid memories of childhood was watching uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, fans, that's great. Um, but I remembered <laughs> where famously uh, Linus recites a few verses from the Gospel of Luke where the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds and says, I've come with glad tidings of great joy that will be for all peoples. And what I thought, and perhaps the same was for you, was that Christmas and Jesus' birth, were, those things were about glad tidings and great joy. And that's still absolutely true. But the scene and the context that we're looking at today is actually pretty dark um, because the world that Jesus entered into was chaotic and dangerous and unpredictable. Um, a world where the innocent are threatened by violence, the insignificant are rejected, where strength is wealth and weakness is death. Maybe in those respects it's actually not much different than ours, is it? The picture that Matthew paints of our world is this, is this, this place of rejection where strength is wealth, where innocence is attacked. But it's in this passage that Matthew is saying something to his Jewish audience, to you and me, about the coming of Jesus. That when Jesus came into the world, when Christmas came, it didn't mean the end of darkness. God was actually bringing something into the darkness. The real king came into this world of violence as an innocent the real king came into this world as an insignificant, without the wealth of strength, abounding in weakness. As John, who was another disciple, put it in his gospel, his account of Christ's life, the light came to shine in the darkness. Jesus came to turn our chaotic world upside down. Now before we get into this specific text, I think it'd be important for us to set the scene with a look at the larger context, Jesus' birth is a break. It's a break in a, in a long silence from God that actually began at the end of the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, which is uh, the part of the Bible that's written before Jesus came. So between Malachi and Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. So the darkness of the world that we're looking at is at an all-time high. Now the Bible in the Old Testament actually paints a tangible picture in the book of Isaiah of what this current society would have looked like. It would have been a world where fairness and honesty were non-existent, a world where people accuse one another through deception and lies, 
a world of outright violence and murder where no one knows how to find peace or what it means to be good or just. And Isaiah caps the description like this, and I'll paraphrase because I think it's important, just this imagery. The people hope for light, but they only find darkness. They wander around as blind people in the middle of the day, like hungry bears, hungry as bears and mournful as doves. So these people that have the hunger, the voracity of bears, and yet the vulnerability of birds. And Matthew says, nowhere is the picture of this society more manifest, more encapsulated than in the king at the time, who's Herod. So let's pick up in verse 13. Now when they had departed, the they being the magi, the pagan priests, those who had come to worship Christ, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And then in verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So here are the Magi, leaving Jesus and his family, having been sent there by Herod. They were supposed to come back to Herod, let him know where Jesus was. God steps in, gives them a sign, sends them back to their country. And then shortly after, Joseph takes Jesus and Mary because of the dream that he was given by the angel of the Lord, and they flee to Egypt together. Now, it's interesting to note, this is a small I wanted to mention this, but we can't really get into it, but I think it's interesting to note that the savior of the world spent his first years as a refugee, an emigrant, and an immigrant. And I think that we'll, we will see that again by the end of this text. But in the wake of this, hearing that there is another king, Herod is completely undone. And so knowing about the age that Jesus would be, he gives an order to have all the boys two years and younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding area killed. This act has been called the slaughter or the massacre of the innocents. And from what we know of Bethlehem's population at the time, it was probably, most likely, between 20 and 30 children that were murdered. And from what we know about Herod, the act fits it fits what he would do. Herod was, uh, was quite amazing and insanely brutal. When he was inaugurated as king, he invited, he invited his families, everyone's there, but then he invited the enemies of his family, ambushed them, and murdered all of them. And during his lifespan, he murdered his mother, his brother-in-law, his second wife, three of his own children, because he was suspicious that they envied his position and would overthrow him. Emperor Augustus famously said of Herod, it's better to be his pig than to be his son. And because Herod was king of Judea, oddly enough, Emperor Augustus named him king of the Jews, just like Jesus would be called. Now while Herod's actions were horrendous, we do have to remember, it's important for us to remember that this is a barbarous society. This, so many other rulers were like Herod. He wasn't alone in this. And if someone was coming to take your spot or threaten your rule, usurp your power, you killed them. And not only them, but you killed their whole family. 
their friends, their family, their cousins, their children, you wipe them out completely because it was an accepted declaration of strength. So even though this is an awful, an awful episode, an awful event, let's ask, why is Matthew, why is Matthew showing, why is he telling us this? Why is Matthew saying to us this here? Could it be that in the advent of Jesus, in the advent of, his, of him coming, that actually his presence incites hostility and violence? Now, when it comes to Herod, I know we're all going to distance ourselves and say, well, I'm not a tyrant. I know that. I am not like Herod at all. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says in the New Testament book, that's the portion of the Bible that was written after Jesus came, the Bible says in the book of Romans that every human heart is opposed to God. It actually says that in its natural state, our hearts are at enmity, enmity towards God, meaning that we don't just ignore God, we don't just fail to acknowledge him, we are actively hostile towards him. Now, we may say that sounds harsh, untrue, unfair, but if we think about it for a moment, do you, do you have a position, a status, a job, that if it was taken from you and given to somebody else, that you would not revolt? I asked Brandon the other day, Brandon's the pastor of Preaching and Vision here, I asked him the other day how he would feel if he came into a gathering and found out we'd replaced him with another pastor. He just said, I'd be confused. I said, fair enough. Um, but think, if you were king, if you were king and you wanted to be king, you liked being king, think of your own job right now. You enjoy your job. What if you walked in and someone is sitting in your place? What if you are the head of a department and you walk in one morning and you're not the head of the department anymore, they've actually gone and put somebody else in your place? I think you'd be livid. I think any of us would be livid. And we would be ready to fight ready to retaliate. Because deep down, the Bible says this, that you and I, we don't want anybody but ourselves in control of our own lives. We want to be in control of our life. In every way, we have a culture here in the West that, that was built on that very assertion, it's my life, and no one gets to tell me what to do with it. But it was Jesus who said to his disciples, this is what he said. So we, we kind of have an idea of how Herod runs things, right? He's, he's going to steamroll anyone in his path. You know that he used to dress up like a commoner and would walk around in kind of the marketplaces? If, if he heard anyone say anything sideways about him, he'd have them killed. That's how he exercises power. That's how he calls for allegiance. It's through fear, coercion. But it was Jesus who said to his disciples this, unless you love me more than anything, more than life, and you see me as your king, 
unless you can see me as your king and love me more than your own life, you can't follow me. Unless you call me Lord and do the things I say, you can't be my disciple. Now we've got to know that we're dealing with two different king of the Jews here. One is leading through force and coercion and one is leading through invitation. And yet if we're honest, we can sense even our inner, inner Herod at the words of Jesus, maybe, maybe, asking for this total allegiance. But it reveals the truth in our souls that we are all little kings and we want to take our lives into our own hands. Um, it reminds me of an Ani, Ani DeFranco song called Napoleon. Uh, the lyrics go, and I know you always, always want more. I know you, you will never be done. Oh, because everyone is a Napoleon. There is a part of our heart deep down that has a voice to it that says, no one tells me what to do. And, and I know that even if you're a sweetheart in this room, and I know there are plenty of you. Even if you're a sweetheart, that voice is there. Just come across the right situation. Just have something taken from you, that voice will come up. It's there. So why? Why would, why would we and Herod, why would we be so hostile? Because Jesus' entrance into this world is a challenge to our own rule. When the Magi came to Jerusalem and asked about where the real king of the Jews is, you can, you can bet that Herod lit up, that he was enraged, that he exploded in jealousy and pushback. And we, in a very real way, are not different than he. Whether Jesus enters the world or our individual lives, he challenges our rule, and that may manifest in fear, anger, jealousy, rage. It will not be moderate, I can promise you. But our problem is not, our problem is not Jesus. It's not religion or no religion. It is our broken, dark, and jealous hearts. See, Jesus comes here in total contrast to Herod, in total contrast to Herod, not as a king, but as a baby. Not strong, but helpless. Not with pomp and circumstance, not with the, 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 the red carpet and the flowers and the audience, but quietly, in the middle of the night, with a small audience. And yet God shows us his upside-down kingdom as a helpless, quiet baby is the true king. The true king. Let's keep reading. Let's go into verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in, a place, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he drew, we withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So God calls Joseph and his family back out of Egypt, back into the home of Israel, back into the promised land. They wanted to live in Judea, but Joseph hears that Archelaus is king. Why is he afraid? Because it's Herod's son. He's probably going to be just as brutal as Herod. So they keep heading northeast into a city called Nazareth. Now the reason this is significant is because here is the savior of the world, the most influential person in the world, the most influential person who ever lived, and he is running for his life just to grow up and live in obscurity. See, Nazareth was nowhere. Nazareth would have given anything to be backwoods. Nazareth would have been given, give me anything to be small town. That's that's at least what what I'm going for. To give you an idea of how well thought of Nazareth was, there's a story in the Gospels where uh, a man named Philip meets Jesus. He's immediately taken with him. Jesus says, follow me. Philip is all in. He says, let's go and follow the Messiah. And he brings a bunch of guys along with him. And one, one of the guys, Nathaniel, asks about Jesus. Where is he from? And Philip says, he's from Nazareth. Nathaniel puts brakes full on. What what good can come of Nazareth? Nothing of any significance, of any good, of any note comes out of Nazareth. You're telling me the Messiah is coming from Nazareth. Now before I lose you here, think about this. When we hear someone say, I live in Pasadena, there's a reaction to that. There is, because our, our heads immediately fill with what we know of Pasadena. It elicits a specific response. What if we said River Oaks? What if we said West U? What if we said Med Center? What if we said Katy? What if we said London? What if we said Los Angeles? What if we said Denver? What if we said Austin? Your, your heads are filling with all different kinds of significance, what's there, what's... And ultimately, really, it's, it shows that we have a tie, a specific tie to the significance of places. Our world has an idea of where important things happen and where important people live. What's upscale? We know what's upscale, what's tacky, what's intelligent, what's wealthy, what's sophisticated, what's undesirable. So in Judea, Jerusalem is Paris, okay? Like, it's way over here on this end. Nazareth is like Geta, Texas. Six people in it. It's a real town. Six people. I can promise you, I'm sure that our society would look and say, a ton is going on in Paris. Not much is happening in, in Gera. Not much is going on there. Now, there's a reason that we laugh at it, because Nathaniel laughed at Nazareth. Nathaniel halted at Nazareth. 
Because the world would say nothing of importance can come out of obscurity. Nothing does. And it's through, see, this is God showing his hand again on this upside-down kingdom. God, in his placement of Jesus in Nazareth, is saying to us, I do not do things the way that you, the world expects me to do them. I don't. I do things upside-down. This is not a top-down kingdom. It's a down-up kingdom. It is a bottom-to-top kingdom. You remember the, the lineage the lineage of Jesus that, that Drew taught through the first week. If you think back to that, and you think back even to the Old Testament, God is always choosing the unlovely and the unlikely things. In a society where first son inherited everything, their, their first chair, top shelf, he chooses Abel, not Cain. He chose David, who was the least kingly of his seven older, much better looking, more, <laughs> more kingly older brothers. And when it comes to women, he repeatedly chooses barren women like 90-year-old Sarah to bring forth a child to carry out his purpose. He picks unloved women, infertile women, ashamed women. God always picks Nazareth. the one that everyone overlooks, God always chooses the one that no one wants. And it's not just that he works with the long shot. It's that his work, his salvation, always comes through where we don't expect. He has set this upside-down kingdom where the lowly are exalted, the proud are brought down. The weak are welcomed. Those who think they are strong are not. Jesus comes from Nazareth talking about a kingdom that is unlike anyone thinks it will be. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, those are the ones who are welcome. You know, when Kimberly and I were in Russia, this is coming up on a, on a decade in January, we spent a lot of time uh, in a bunch of different houses in Russia. We were there for almost eight months, and we got to meet a lot of different people, um, got to sit on a lot of couches and have a lot of conversations about the Lord, about God. This is in a country of Russian Orthodox. That's the church. And when we would talk to them about God, we would get to a point, because they they often you know, they had icons all around their house and they would say, you know, I pray to this icon for this and I, if I, I'm going on a trip, I pray to this icon and if I'm sick, I pray to this icon. And we would ask at some point, if there is a heaven, how do you know that you're going there? And the most consistent answers, there were obviously hundreds of derivations of this, but it had everything to do with this is how I've lived. This is what I've done. This is what I haven't done. And that is what our world thinks the kingdom is like. It's only for those who can achieve. It's for the strong. It's for the sure. It's for the capable. 
It's for those who have ability and will. It's for the moral. It's for King Herod, not baby Jesus. See, God shows us this upside-down kingdom again, that Jesus Christ comes as a baby under threat, in poverty, and obscurity. He's born in Nazareth, not Jerusalem, Gera, not Paris. And he comes in weakness, and he goes to the cross, a beaten, abandoned man with no counterattack, no violence. No violence like Herod. No, willingly he goes. His kingdom is for those who know they can't get it on their own. The upside-down kingdom where those who know that they're weak, those people are welcome. It's completely opposite of what we or the world would think, and yet exactly what God has done over and over and over throughout Scripture, he always picks those who are overlooked. It's a salvation for the weak, from the weak. Now, what does that mean for us, practically, right now? A few things. It does mean that our hope is not in the powerful people of the world, in the hands of politicians, in the hands of governors and mayors. It, doesn't mean, it means that the kingdom is not going to advance because we have a Christian mayor, a Christian governor, a Christian president with some loud agenda. No, our hope is in the weak and meek King Jesus. It means that God meets you in what you are sure is insignificant in your life what you're doing, who you are, your personality, what you love, what you're good at. That God is in the things that even you overlook about you. It means that the kingdom advances through slow, insignificant, everyday, and unlikely means. Through quiet relationships of the people in your parish, through the quiet relationships of the people in your workplace, the people in your neighborhood. God puts his greatest honor in the places that we least expect it. It means moms and attorneys that changing a diaper is no more or less significant in God's eyes than closing a million dollar deal or finishing a two year project. Does filling out a spreadsheet or getting your classroom ready uh, seem small? Maybe it is. But that's where God is. And that's where God meets you. In the places we think he won't or in the places we think he doesn't. We were talking about this the other day and Drew said, I think it probably deserves an amendment that the devil isn't in the details. That God is. And it's a challenge to all of us who think that everything that we do is significant. And it's also a challenge to all of us that believe that everything we do is insignificant. I'm not worth much. Oh man, God is after you. 
God won't overlook you. Even here at Sojourn, we are a body, but it's more than a metaphor. If I'm, as I'm standing here, as each one of you is sitting there, how many insignificant processes are going on right now to keep us all alive? And yet we need every one of them. If you are a member of Sojourn Heights, then you are necessary for the full life of Sojourn Heights. Every single one of you. It means that if you feel like you don't belong, you actually do. So let's close here. Joseph, let's, let's recap a little bit. Joseph takes Jesus and Mary initially down into Egypt to escape Herod. And when Herod died, they came up out of Egypt and they went back to their homeland in Judea and settled in Nazareth. But let's read verse 15. This is a very important verse, as well as verse 18. But verse 15 first. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew here is referring to the prophet Hosea. But his Jewish audience would not have read this or heard it as God referring to Jesus. See, when God spoke to his people, the people of Israel, all throughout the Old Testament, that portion of the Bible that was written before Jesus, all throughout the Old Testament, there are multiple places where when God speaks to Israel, he says, Israel, my son. Israel, my child. And in the book of Hosea, Israel, specifically here, Israel was exiled to Egypt, just like Jesus. But God rescued them out of Egypt, took them, took Israel to Mount Sinai, gave them the law, said, live like this and you'll flourish. And he said, obey me and I'll bless you. And then he told them to go to Judea, to the promised land, but they didn't obey. In fact, that's the entire Old Testament over and over and over again. God says, obey and I'll bless you, and his people don't. He rescues them repeatedly in different situations. He reminds them, please obey me and I'll bless you, and they don't. And we're no different because Israel is a microcosm of the human race. He says, obey me and I'll bless you, and we don't. And that is why the world is dark and dangerous, why our hearts are dark and dangerous. But this is why, this is why Jesus came. In Jesus, God's true son came to earth and he was immediately under threat, so he is exiled to Egypt. The true king of the Jews flees the murderous king of the Jews. His, this anti-Herod runs to Egypt, whereas, whereas Israel fled to Egypt, Jesus has, he flees to retrace the steps of Egypt, to be the true son of God, to be the true Israel, to do what they couldn't do, to be what they couldn't be. And when he comes out of Egypt and back to Judea, unlike Israel, he obeys his father. 
He loved God and his neighbor with everything he had, and he was the only person who actually obeyed God. He was the anti-Herod. Herod was seated on a throne. Jesus was laid in a manger. Herod went to every length to preserve his own life in fear and paranoia. Jesus gladly laid his own life down in joy. Herod destroyed innocence with violence. Jesus restored life through love. Herod tried to turn the world upside down through force, coercion, fear, and death. Jesus turned it upside down through weakness, love, humility, and sacrifice. And because of that, he's the only one who's ever earned the blessing of God by being the true Israel, by being the true king, by being the true son, by being the true human. But here, here's something crazy. At the end of his life, he didn't get the blessing. He didn't get a crown of life or a crown of gold. He got a crown of thorns. He didn't get a throne. He got a wooden cross. He didn't, he didn't get a wardrobe a regal wardrobe, he, he had a, a purple shawl thrown around him and he was mocked. Instead of receiving the blessing, he received the curse. He received the curse for our disobedience so that we could receive the blessing for his obedience. And now if we believe him, we get the blessing that he deserved, that he earned. And here's a big point. Matthew presents that passage to his Jewish audience as if the Bible is about Jesus. He's saying, don't you see? It's all about him. Give me a passage. It's about him. He is the true Israel the true king, the true son. He is the true lamb, the true lion, the true temple, the true land. He's everything that we've been waiting for and waiting on. It's not about our good lives earning anything. It's about his life and how he became the perfect son and fulfilled the Bible fully. And knowing what he did for us, remembering it, enjoying it, and talking about it, it will swallow up the remaining hostility in our hearts towards God. Because of his kindness to us in his son. And we don't have to beat that truth into our heads or our hearts. We get to take our hearts and lay it down in that. And let it just fall beneath the depth of what Jesus has done. You know what he did? Let's look at verse 18. There's a lot here in this verse. Rachel weeping for her children. It's a passage from the book of Jeremiah, also in the Old Testament. Rachel was the wife of Jacob who was also called Israel. 
She wanted children so badly that she said, give me children or I die. She died in childbirth. She died giving birth to Benjamin. And in a way, she died giving life to Benjamin. Do you see what Matthew's saying? Do you see what the Bible is saying? Jesus died to give you life, to give us life. That he died so that we might live. See, he's the fulfillment of the Bible, but he is your fulfillment. He's our fulfillment. Do you, I think we can admit something here that's important. Is there something that you're waiting on? Is there someone that you're waiting on? Maybe you're waiting on a baby. Maybe you're waiting on a spouse. Maybe you're waiting on a career or a home. Maybe you're waiting on just being better. Being better for him. Are you waiting to be liked, to be loved, to be needed, to be respected, to be thought highly of? I had a really, really difficult relationship with my father. And I, I spent a lot of years waiting on him to be my dad. And even after he died, I felt that I was still waiting. I was waiting on a father. Are you? Are you waiting on a mom, on a sister, on a brother, on a family? See, the good news is this, we don't have to wait anymore. The good news is that Jesus is not dead, he's alive. The good news is that in Christ, you're not, you are alive too, that you will live again, that Rachel will live again. We don't have to wait any longer. The fulfillment of our souls has come, and like the song says, all things are mine because I am his. Yeah? Yeah. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for weak, meek Jesus. Thank you for your true son, our true king, our true shepherd, our true master, our true pastor, our true friend. Thank you, Father, for making the seemingly insignificant significant. Thank you for making every member of Sojourn necessary for life at Sojourn. Father, may we be a people who enjoy this upside-down kingdom. Where those of us who maybe even right now are thinking, I don't think this is for me because I'm not enough of this.
Father, will you speak? Will you move? The kingdom is for you. You think you're not in, you're in. Father, please let us be a people who enjoy you, who revel in you, who revel in the gospel, who revel in the good news of what you've done and that we would speak about it so much, that we would enjoy it and love it so much and so often that it would become what our heart knows is true more and more, that we would be more and more convinced of the truth, your truth. Lord, we love you and we need you. We, we can't do this alone. We need you. Please help us. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.